This is Africa Digest. Your time is 1700 hours Central African time. Right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumela Lezondi. Hello and welcome to the program. You can find us on 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am with Onel Nzinti, Wesane Matabula, and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Botswana's President Festus Mokhaya has decried a renewed fighting that's currently raging in various places in South Sudan. Former University of the Witwatersrand SRC leader Shaira Kalla is reported being treated at hospital after she was shot by police. But first, let's get the news from Onelen Zinti. Thank you, Spoo. Former Botswana President Festus Mkhaya says he is saddened by renewed fighting that is currently raging in various places in South Sudan. Now head of a special commission that has been empowered to ensure that the peace agreement signed by President Salva Kiir and his political and military opponent, Riyak Mashar, Mkhaya is calling on both sides to gain full control of their forces and observe the ceasefire with immediate effect. There are almost daily violations of the ceasefire perpetrated by uniformed armed forces of SPLA-IG and SPLA-IO. I call upon both sides to gain full control of their forces and observe the ceasefire with immediate effect. There can be no compromise on this issue. Leadership must be demonstrated and restraint must be shown. I say again, as I have said before, that there cannot be and will never be a military solution to the conflict in South Sudan. The only path to sustainable peace is dialogue. Opponents of Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe are calling for renewed protest action following the ban on demonstrations imposed last month expired. Zimbabwe has in recent months been hit by a wave of protests as Zimbabweans demand that government act on the ongoing economic hardships as well as rapid corruption. Activist and author Patson Zamara has called upon all Zimbabweans to firmly stand together in their numbers to demand change. The opposition MDC led by Morgan Sangarai says it's spending the biggest protest action to force Mugabe out of office. The Mozambique government and opposition party Renamo have resumed talks despite the October 9th killing of a senior Renamo official. The, the death of Jeremias Pondeka, a member of the Joint Commission, set up to find ways to overcome the standoff between the two parties over a range of issues cast a cloud over the negotiations with talks that resumed on Tuesday. The Commission has so far reached no definitive agreement on any of the matters on its agenda, including Renamo's demand for six provincial governors and the inclusion of its militia in the army and police. Acting Deputy Director General at South Africa's Higher Education Department, Diane Parker, says free higher education is not budgeted for in the Infrastructure Efficiency Grant. Parker, in her presentation to the Commission of Inquiry into Higher Education and Training, says the Infrastructure Efficiency Grant will address one aspect which is a huge challenge, and that is student accommodation. She says that the South African government is already doing a lot in assisting academically deserving and financially needy students. 
linked to the kinds of protests that have been having is this whole issue about improving student housing, which is one of the major projects that we are undertaking in this particular aspect. I mean, in terms of government policy, it's been stated numerous occasions that we are progressively implementing free higher education for the poor and to support the missing middle students in higher education. Meanwhile, South African fees mass for activists have welcomed the support of South Africans studying overseas. South African students based in the United States this week expressed their support to the campaign. They marched to the South African consulate in New York on Wednesday to hand over a memorandum of demand to the South African ambassador, Ninoa Mashango. The activists also say the decolonization movement is beginning to take root in New York. The South African Students Council President Avela Mjajubana says international support has given them energy. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinti. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. The South Sudan, where former Botswana President Festus Mokhaya has decried renewed fighting that is currently raging in various places in South Sudan. The fighting pits government troops and fighters loyal to former Vice President Riek Machar, now leader of a rebel force that has vowed to topple the government of Salvakir in the capital Juba, James Shimanyula. With more than one year gone since South Sudan President Salvakir and his principal political military opponent Riek Machar signed a peace agreement to permanently put to an end hostilities in Africa's newest nation, permanent peace has eluded Africa's newest nation. Shortly after the signing of the peace agreement, thanks to the United States, Norway and other countries in the so-called Troika that pushed for peace to prevail in South Sudan, the situation has remained fragile, with on-and-off battles between warring factions supporting the two South Sudan leaders, Salva Kiir and Riek Machar. Even after the return of Riek Machar to South Sudan to take up his position as the country's number two powerful man, the situation remains edgy, with the battles echoing across the capital Juba, and elsewhere resulting in the escape from Juba by Riek Machar, who first sought refuge in neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo after trekking the jungles of the Central African nation for 40 days. And when he reached the capital Kinshasa, he became ill, received treatment, and subsequently left for Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, South Sudan's northern neighbor. Now Riek Machar is about to return to Khartoum, the place he calls temporary home, from South Africa as he plans to wage what he has characterized as the battle of all battles to remove Salva Kiri from power. As the world waits for Machar to accomplish his deadly mission in Juba, fighting continues to rage in many parts of the country. It is that very fighting that has saddened former Botswana President Festus Mokhae, 
the man appointed by the regional trade block IGAD and the African Union to head a special commission tasked with ensuring that the peace agreement that was signed a year ago is indeed implemented in full. Speaking to journalists in the capital Juba, Mohai confirmed that fighting is taking place in Africa's newest nation and clearly names the Sudan People's Liberation Army, which he refers to as SPLA-IG, meaning SPLA in government, and the rebel outfit of Riek Machar, which Mohai abbreviates as SPLA-IO, meaning SPLA in opposition. There are almost daily violations of the ceasefire, perpetrated by uniformed armed forces of SPLA-IG and SPLA-IO, and other armed groups. The hostility, or rather this hostility, has the potential to trigger an uncontrolled escalation of violence motivated by retribution. I call upon both sides to gain full control of their forces and observe the ceasefire with immediate effect. There can be no compromise on this issue. Leadership must be demonstrated and restraint must be shown. I say again, as I have said before, that there cannot be and will never be a military solution to the conflict in South Sudan. The only path to sustainable peace is dialogue and the relentless pursuit of reconciliation and an inclusive political process. We do not make peace with our friends. We reconcile with those with whom we disagree. We urge the Tugnu to re-establish an environment within which all people of South Sudan, irrespective of their ethnicity or background, can safely retain and engage in constructive and peaceful dialogue. That was Festus Mohai, former Botswana president, now head of a special commission that has been empowered to ensure that the peace agreement signed by President Salva Kiir and his political and military opponent Riek Machar is fulfilled. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. A temporary halt to fighting in Yemen has been described by the United Nations aid workers as welcome but not enough as humanitarian teams try to deliver aid to hard-to-reach communities caught up in the conflict. A 72-hour ceasefire is due to come into effect at midnight on Wednesday involving forces loyal to President Hadi Mansour and anti-government Houthi rebels. UN Humanitarian Coordinating Agency, OCHA, has warned that Yemen is one of the poorest countries on earth and the 18-month-old conflict has had a terrible effect on its people. That ceasefire should be in place, the 72-hour ceasefire that was due to come into effect at midnight on Wednesday. Here's Daniel Johnson. The announcement of a three-day halt to the fighting in Yemen cannot come soon enough for millions of desperately vulnerable people. But it's not nearly long enough, says Jamie McCaldrick, UN representative in the Arabian Peninsula country. Here he is speaking from the capital, Sana. By having just access in 72 hours, you interrupt your planning by diverting attention somewhere else. Whereas if we can have those areas open at all times, then we can plan differently and we can supply better. One of the key priorities once the pause in fighting begins is getting aid to people in the city of Taiz. It's on the front line of the conflict between government forces and Houthi rebels. 
Some 600,000 people have been displaced by the fighting in the central Yemeni city, the UN says, in a plea for funding from the international community. Other places that need urgent help include Marad and the capital Sana, where airstrikes were reported on Wednesday. Getting that aid into Yemen continues to be a huge challenge, with one of the country's main ports, Hadaida, still crippled from airstrikes that damaged its huge cranes that were used to offload ships. Jamie McCaldrick again. What that means is that uh, many ships spend a lot of time trying to offload. The, the log jam of the bottlenecks comes with the ability of the port to offload these goods, and that makes our job very much harder in terms of bringing in the right supplies and on time. And we've seen reports of goods being kept on the open sea for too long, but by the time they come on shore, the foodstuffs have actually been spoiled. The lack of food coming into Yemen is insufficient to satisfy the needs of the population, and this has led to widespread malnutrition. According to the UN, nearly 3 million people need food aid, and 1.3 million youngsters are acutely malnourished. To help counter this, the UN has called for $1.63 billion from the international community. To date, this appeal is less than 47% funded. In addition to the violence, Yemen now faces another threat, cholera. The first cases were confirmed three weeks ago in Sana, and there are now hundreds more suspected infections. After 18 months of war, however, less than half of the country's health infrastructure is operational. Another blow to Yemen's struggling population was the closure of Sana Airport. It was used by many people with chronic diseases to fly abroad for treatment. Cancer patients haven't been spared by the ongoing conflict either, with 40,000 sufferers inside Yemen now without treatment at the main facility in the capital after it was forced to close. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. November is Disability Month in South Africa, but should be a continental event. So, let's all make a difference. Channel Africa is calling on all to join us to help needy children everywhere. South Africans are being called on to help Channel Africa help 32 children from Tumela Home for the Mentally and Physically Disabled Children in Ivory Park, east of Johannesburg. Make a difference by donating toys, non-perishable foods, disposable nappies and toiletries. Join Channel Africa on the 10th of November as we broadcast live from Tumelo House as we hand out the donations we received. Be with us as we make a difference. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It is 17.15 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pumela Lezondi. I'm with you until... 1800 hours Central African time info at channelafrica.co.za on email. Now the United Nations Children's Fund says breakthrough prices have been achieved with six vaccine suppliers who offered to price a pentavalent vaccine at an 84 cents a dose average, half the price that the agency currently pays. The pentavalent vaccine is a combination of five vaccines in one that is diphtheria tetanus, whooping cough, hepatitis B, and haemophilus influenza type B. 
The new pricing will also be accessed by governments and will generate over 336 million US dollars in savings for donors. More from Chanel Hall, who is the director of the supply division at the United Nations Children's Fund. We've just concluded a, a tender process. And so at this moment in time, we have really some of the greatest market conditions that we've ever had for this 5-in-1 vaccine. So we have the lowest ever average price, and we have uh, a supplier base of of six manufacturers um, that we've awarded. So it's competitive, healthy market, and uh, low price, which for us this is critical because, you know, this is really, this vaccine is a cornerstone of immunization programs. Every child in the world should be immunized um, with these five antigens. Having any of the price or availability as a barrier to access, uh, which has been the case in the past, is, is, is really, as we see it, been removed and really paves the way for sustainable access and for scale-up for, for governments. I guess this is really a milestone in in achieving, you know, making vaccines more affordable. But will governments also be able to access this new pricing? Yes, they will. And that, for us, was also an important part of the milestone, is that um, sometimes in the past we've had had kind of funding-specific pricing from different different uh, companies. And this time we have a price that prices that are applicable to whether governments self-finance or, or, or donors finance. For us, that's a really important part of the breakthrough as well because, you know, many governments already fully budget this vaccine for their, for their children and others are increasingly budget, so relying less on, on external funds but using their own tax revenues to, to fund this. So it's really important for them to also be able to immunize more children with their same budget dollars. So just to confirm that, that yes, this is also part of the breakthrough. Reports show that, you know, an estimated 90% of um, the world's children under the age of five die annually from um, vaccine-preventable diseases in in a lot of countries. And I guess this new pricing then, this breakthrough in prices of vaccines, it comes in handy. Correct. And if you look at the the causes of death of children under under five, several of them are vaccine-preventable and, of course, Several of them are the ones that, that this 5-in-1 vaccine will, will protect. But, but there's also governments are introducing and in scaling up vaccines to protect against pneumonia and diarrhea, which are really two of the larger killers of children. And so this also relieves some of the budget pressures on this vaccine so they can use their budget money to spend it on those vaccines, which are still higher priced. We're also working with industry to, to reduce those prices. What has led to this new pricing? Governments first started really introducing um, this vaccine around 16 years ago. And, and it, in that sense, it's a five-in-one formulation that allows a, a healthcare worker to more easily protect children against, with these five antigens. So to some extent, it's been a 16-year journey that has gotten us to this point. And, and in the year 2000, we had one supplier and the price at that time was around $3.80 at the then U.S. dollar. Now, just so since then, you know, demand has increased. Um, national governments have included this vaccine as a part of their national immunization programs. They have, you know, really, I would say the biggest work is done at country level for them to budget it, but really 
introduce immunization programs that get this vaccine to children, even in the most remote, remote areas. So during the scale-up of, of, of demand, we also had manufacturers that started to um, research and develop and, and, and get the vaccine available, and then they installed production capacity so that they could meet the increasing demand levels. And now we're in a place where we have several manufacturers that have, you could say, maybe recouped some of their investment costs, both in the development of the vaccine, but also in their uh, installing their production capacity. And so there's a combination of factors that have led us to this point, which results in a, a healthy supplier base and a, a more affordable price. That is Chanel Ho, who's the director of the supply division of the United Nations Children's Fund, talking to Komoto Mopulane. South African Finance Minister Pravin Kodan last night spoke with optimism regarding the country's chances of averting a possible downgrade expected later this year by ratings agencies. Speaking to faith leaders at the National Church Leaders Consultation in Johannesburg, Kodan said the country must take tough decisions and send out a strong message about the leadership and economy of the country to avoid a downgrade. Although he focused most of his address on how to develop generations of citizens who were not dependent on the state. He also spoke to the guests about his impending midterm budget address set to take place next week Wednesday. More from Chief Economist at economist.co.za, Mike Schussler. I think, um, unfortunately, I don't share that optimism quite as much as the minister does. I'm not saying all rating agencies are going to downgrade us. But we must remember that we're on a negative outlook with the three major ones. I'm not sure about the Japanese and South Korean ones, but they have in the past year also downgraded us, although we are still investment rating with them. The fact of the matter is, I think at least one of them will probably downgrade us this year still. And if it is Moody's, it would be still investment grade, but the other two will then take us to non-investment grade. Having said that, I think the trajectory of the economy is looking a little bit better for next year. This year, the growth outcomes are really, really going to be horrible. Last year was also not good, and the year before it wasn't good. Now, next year is not going to be brilliant growth either, but it's forecast to be around 1%, and at least it's going to be a bit quicker than this year's growth. So there is reason for optimism, but it doesn't mean that we won't get a downgrade. I think that's the viewpoint I would take. I'd say that at least one of the three will probably downgrade us this year. Now, Minister Gordon has called on government, labor, business and civil society to find common ground for the sake of the country. Now, will this be enough in light of all the political upheaval the world has been observing? I hope so. You know, we're in a position now where the politics should be ending. The infighting must end. If it doesn't, it's obviously going to make it much more likely that we're going to get a downgrade. And as many other economists have said, then the downgrade could in fact be a downgrade and another negative outlook on that, or a downgrade by two notches by some of the rating agencies is not, you know, off the radar. I am really just concerned for the people of South Africa and of Africa Mm. if we continue with this sort of political infighting. We need to have that sort of infighting far removed from where it affects the economy. It really, all political parties around the world, you know, one leader wants to outdo the other one. 
there's no doubt that that happens very often. But this sort of, I'm going to lock you up sort of infighting, and I'm just going to appoint uh, people who are going to do what I say 100% is not what happens in most, let's call it Western-style democracies and also even, you know, democracies anywhere, whether they're Western or not. It's Japan, India, and the like. So I think we need to see a little bit more maturity in our politics. I really do. And picking up on that, what would happen if, if Minister Gordon was to be arrested and removed uh, from his post because of sure. the charges that we're talking about? Well, I think at the moment the market doesn't expect it, but if it does happen, it will be a very big thing, and I think the rand could quite easily fall past 15 to the dollar, even 16, 17, maybe even 18 at the outside is certainly a possibility. I think, you know, I don't speak to foreign investors every day, mm-hmm. But my feeling is that they are very weary, those that I've spoken to in the last two, three years, uh, really a lot of weariness. And uh, it's not just about the finance minister, but it's been coming on for a while now. And you know, remember Nanigate, uh, the appointment of mm. Mr. Zwani. Um, I'm not a political analyst, but it does make um, investors around the world. And as I said, it's not just the sort of American one or the Japanese one, but it's also the Indian one, you know, our fellow BRICS partners and so on that are, are concerned about those sort of things. And even Brazilian companies that are looking to come and invest here in, say, a sector such as construction are getting a little bit worried about the political infighting and are reluctant to make those decisions. So mm. I'm just using practical examples without mentioning names, yeah. but that's where we really are. And I think we just need, for the sake of the country, we need a lot more stability on top. It's not about who the leader is necessarily, it's about how the leadership behaves itself. Mike Schussler is a South African economist and he's the chief economist at economist.co.za and he was talking to Amanda Machaka. In the lead-up to the festive season, the governments of South Africa, Botswana and Namibia have embarked on a joint traffic law enforcement operation. Situated at the Trans-Kalahari Corridor, which connects the three countries, traffic inspectors and officials have partnered up in a large-scale roadblock operation. The event is aimed at enhancing security enforcement and thus improving use of the corridor for lawful use. To tell us more about this, we spoke to Matabata Mokonyama, acting director Director or General of South Africa's Department of Transport, Katlolo Gabriel Mosimachape, Director of Traffic for Botswana, and Cedric Mwanota Limbo, Director of Transport in Namibia. The Transkalahari Corridor is a concept conceptualized in 2003 mm. where three countries came together to explore development along the route from Gauteng through to Namibia via uh, Botswana. In the MOU, the agreement was that there should be institutional structures, but also the main objective was to harmonize matters related to corridor development and corridor management, including law enforcement. Today here we have a collaboration between the three countries in terms of law enforcement. You have uh, police, you have customs, you have traffic officers, you have cross-border traffic officials uh, from the three countries collaborating 
it has not started uh, this year here in South Africa, but the agreement uh, or in the MOU, an agreement was that uh, it will be held in each of the countries. Mm. Now, the past two were held in Botswana, okay. and this year we are here in South Africa and hosting our counterparts from the two uh, countries. Now, that's fantastic to hear that this is not the first time such an event takes place. Let me move it to to you, Mr. Musimani Khape, in terms of looking at, uh, you know, why is this uh, network so important, especially the collaboration between the three countries? Like it's already been indicated, the first two were in Botswana. In fact, the first one was just a sample of what we can do in terms of, uh, you know, jointly working together to manage this corridor. But uh, this year in April, around the Easter's, we had the first one in Botswana, just next to the border with South Africa at uh, Lobazi and closer to the border with uh, Namibia at Mamono. And uh, this is a route that is uh, putting us together as the three countries. Mm. It's not just about the economic part of it, but uh, of course the main principle is around the economic uh, part of it. Mm. But we are one people, we are one region. Mm. And uh, in terms of our relations, we have uh, relatives in South Africa, Mm. from Botswana, we have relatives in Namibia and so forth. And... uh, of course, in terms of uh, trade, yes, we operate different laws as uh, independent countries, yes. but uh, what puts us together is uh, the corridor. Mm-hmm. And if we have a corridor that is running through the three countries, what has to be looked at first is the harmonization of the laws mm-hmm. so that uh, the laws do not become an impediment mm-hmm. to you know, the, the, the principle that is there, which is the economic drive mm. side of it. And how important is that security element? I know it's an area that you're involved in. It is important, but uh, when it comes to matters of security, mm. you know, we always have uh, areas where we would have to tread very carefully mm. because, uh, like, like we are indicating, mm. you know, the, the, the good thing about this corridor is the, 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 the trade part of it. Yes. But uh, other things are not ruled out to be used as, uh, you know, an opportunity mm. to do other things that are outside the law. So mm. as we move towards harmonization, mm. we are very cautious of other elements that may destroy the good things that mm. uh, were intended from mm. the beginning. Mr. Lembo? I think uh, the important uh, uh, issue, like we are saying, we want to minimize travel cost, mm. the red tape. Uh, uh, one of the issues is that the document you are having in Namibia should be recognized by all member states. That's what we are trying to do. Okay. The other issue is uh, one border, uh, one-stop border post. Uh, for an example, we are very glad that uh, Botswana has reformed their laws, which we are trying to also now, it's with the Attorney General, mm. To say that, why should you stop from Botswana and you again you stop in Namibian side? Mm. So we are trying to have one border, uh, one stop border post. That if the formalities have been already occurred in Namibia, why should you go just across the mm. end stop <laughs> all those times? So sure. really, this some of these formalities are not doing any good to business, to travelers. So the MOU is encouraging us. In mm. fact, we have. As technical people, a duty to do because our principal have already signed the MOU and given us that whatever is stopping us from having this seamless movement should be brought to the attention. And that's why they are very, very happy that if a law is, needs to be changed, 
we need to do that. So as technical people, we have a lot to do to ensure that some of this harmonization takes place and the, we have the principle happy because they, we have now their vision has been realized. It's um, that was Cedric Mwanota Limbo, who's the director of transport in Namibia. You also, pardon me, you also heard from Katlolo Gabriel Musima Nehape, director of traffic for Botswana and Matabata Mogonyana, acting director or general of South Africa's Department of Transport. They're speaking to Benjamin Mushadama on the order between Botswana and South Africa. Your news headlines now with Onel and Zinzi. Former Botswana President Festus Mokhai is saddened by renewed fighting that is currently reaching in various places in South Sudan. Opponents of Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe call for renewed protest action following the ban on demonstrations imposed last month expired and over 300 Wurz University students in South Africa returned back to campus after a peaceful march through the CBD. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilinsinsi. November is Disability Month in South Africa, but should be a continental event. So let's all make a difference. Channel Africa is calling on all to join us to help needy children everywhere. South Africans are being called on to help Channel Africa help 32 children from Tumela Home for the Mentally and Physically Disabled Children in Ivory Park, east of Johannesburg. Make a difference by donating toys, non-perishable foods, disposable nappies and toiletries. Join Channel Africa on the 10th of November as we broadcast live from Tumelo House as we hand out the donations we received. Be with us as we make a difference. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Seventeen thirty-four Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. It's Channel Africa One on Twitter. If you want to send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za on email. You can also send us SMSs plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. My name is Pamela Zondi. I'm with you until. 1800 hours Central African time. Now, former Wits University SRC leader Shaira Kalla <laughs> is reported being treated at hospital after she was shot by police at least nine times with rubber bullets. This is the latest in the Fismat Fall protests that have uh, gripped the Southern African nation. Students took to the streets uh, four weeks ago after Minister of Higher Education and Training, Blade Nzimande, announced that institutions could only hike fees by not more than 8%. Since then, tertiary institutions have seen students refusing to go back to lecture halls unless a government agrees to a no-fee 
payment system. A number of students have also been arrested for various charges, including malicious damage to property and theft, amongst others. To talk to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Vet University's Sharona Patel. Hello, Sharona. Hi. Um, Sharona, maybe if you can just give us an update of what the situation is at VITS today. Okay, as in right now, right now it's uh, calm, it's peaceful, nothing's happening right now. Earlier today we had a group of students which uh, went into two lecture theatres, disrupted the lectures there, then went into a test venue where they took the test papers, uh, uh, gathered them and tore them up and threw them all around. Um, this group then marched through campus where they were confronted by security and police. The police then um, just tried to disperse the crowd using rubber bullets and grenades and uh, tear gas. Um, this resulted in four students uh, uh, walking away with uh, rubber bullet wounds and uh, many others who had to be treated at the Campus Health and Wellness Center. They were treated. Two students had to be taken to hospital uh, where they are still being treated. What do you know about the two students who are being treated um, at hospital at the moment? How, how severe are the ones? Um, so, from what we understand is that they are, are stable. The, the one person had an injury to a leg. That was not due to the protest, but that was because she fell. Um, that was a dislocated leg. Um, on the other student, we believe that she's currently being treated, but that she's in a stable condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that student um, that you're talking about, is it Shaira Kalla? I can't comment on that. She's, um, we are not allowed to, uh, basically, uh, when people are being treated, we are not, not allowed to disclose anything got to do with their medical condition. So I, I wouldn't want to name the student on air. All right. Um, now, yesterday we also saw the Vice-Chancellor, Adam Habib, being ejected from a meeting that was hoping to find a solution to the current situation. Uh, was this university surprised at all by, by this? Well, uh, the vice chancellor and the senior executive team were invited to the meeting. They were invited by the organizers of the meeting, which was the academic staff union, the church leaders, and others. Um, when they arrived there, the students then decided that they didn't want them there. This was after weeks of accusing the senior executive team that of not engaging with students directly. Um, this was a perfect opportunity for that um, to take place. The meeting was held in a church under the theme of a, a developing a peace accord. And we thought this was appropriate to attend. However, the students clearly didn't want to engage. And for that reason, the senior executive team left the church and the meeting continued. Mm. Um, why do you think the students are reacting in this manner? Um, there's even been a hashtag uh, that says Habib's apartheid. I think you'd have to check that with the students. You know, the, basically they're accusing him of putting in place apartheid type measures that is uh, putting in a curfew at night, um, and etc., and, and accuse him of getting people arrested. Now, these are things which basically that they have made up. There is no truth to this. Firstly, the the arrest of students, and particularly the student leader, Mr. Mkebo Dlamini, who is in, uh, in prison now, that was made by the police. That was an independent process, and which Brits had nothing to do with. So they're accusing him of that, but um, I guess he's just a soft target. Secondly, they... Um, talk about the restrictions which have been put in place at night between 10 and 2. Now, we have running battles between 10 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning where students um, throw rocks at, at buildings, they smash windows, they flood classrooms, they um, uh, they basically start fires. We had four fires start last Thursday night, four fires start last Friday night, all of which, if are not contained in time, can destroy entire buildings. Um, it's because of that that we've put in place measures asking people to remain in their residence rooms 
between 10 at night and 6 o'clock in the morning. This is so that we can protect our property as well as all the students and staff who stay in our residences and who are on our campuses at that time. The students haven't taken kindly to that, but um, it has helped us to save at least some of our property and to put um, other people's, uh, to to ensure that other people remain safe in their residences. Um, These are happening on campus, yes, but is there proof that it's actually the students um, that are starting these fires? Absolutely. So we've got evidence in many cases that there are students. We know that which residences they stay in and which residences they occupy. Um, <laughs> so, yes, um, uh, we do know that in altercations in Bramfontein on Friday night, for example, that there weren't students involved there. But in this case, yes, there are students involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are saying that you have requested students. Um, what then happens if students choose not to stay indoors during those times? Well, we've asked our own campus security to to um, to keep them indoors. We are reviewing the conditions under which people move, etc. And yesterday, we've been talking to some student leaders. In fact, they're currently in discussions as well. We're basically saying students, especially those staying in residence, if you through the All Residence Council can look after students in your residence, if you can ensure that they aren't involved in violence or violent acts, then by all means, we'll, we'll lift all restrictions. But until such time, as you can um, guarantee us that um, your students won't be involved um, in any of these things, then um, there's not much we can do but, but to keep it in place. Those negotiations are currently underway and they should be con- concluded in the next few hours. Mm. You say you are using security to ensure that students are kept indoors. Students in the past have said that they're not happy with the increased presence of security um, at the University campus. Um, how are they reacting to security again um, uh, being asked to ensure that they stay indoors? Okay, maybe just qualify which students you say. You say students are not happy. That's a, these are a small group of the protesting students, which are at any time um, at the most, at the height, about a 1,000. There are 36,000 others, plus their parents, plus all the staff members who are on campus who are intimidated and threatened by the small group of students. If we don't have security in place, if we don't have the police in place, we've got 35,000 other unhappy people. We've got people who want to work and learn. It's a constitutional right to do so, and we have to protect it. It's for that reason that we have police and security on campus. Further, uh, we believe that uh, students have the right to protest, but they must do so peacefully without infringing on the rights of those who want to work and learn. When it comes to damage to property, um, if the police and security weren't here for the past week, we would have lost many buildings. If we hadn't put out those fires, we would have lost many buildings. That would be hundreds of millions of rands worth of, of buildings that we don't need, that management does need, that the vice chancellor does need, but that the students need, that future generations need. And so I think we need to be start. Uh, uh, we need to stop thinking about these in terms of heroics or some students don't want security, etc. We need to think of what's best for current students, for all 37,000 students at the university, for all staff members, and we have to think about future generations. We can't allow our infrastructure to be destroyed because it destroys the futures of future generations. Uh, from your engagement with the police at the university, um, are they saying there's no other method to um, react to this protest apart from firing tear gas and rubber bullets? Well, you would have to ask. Um, you would have to ask the students. Uh, um, you know. Well, I'm asking you as a representative of its university because I'm, I'm assuming you are engaging with the police as well, well on we, on their responses. Well, you want to ask. So you you're asking us about the, what the police response is. 
um, if you've ever spoken to the police about uh, because um, in the past we've seen that when uh, tear gas and um, and rubber bullets are fired, it it probably does lead to um, to more violence. So what I'm asking is whether you've engaged the police at all um, uh, to find out if there aren't any other methods to to respond to these stu- to the protesting students um, apart yeah. from firing tear gas and um, uh, firing rubber bullets. Well, we've engaged with the police, but remember, we don't have control over the police. The police have their own chain of command. So, for example, our VIP security or even the private security that we hire, the, they don't have any rubber bullets, tear gas, stun guns, anything like that. They've only got shields and, in some instances, vacants, but that's what they've got. The um, Our campus control don't have any of that. They just have uniforms. Uh, but when it comes to the police, the police have their own chain of command. No one can dictate to them about what to do or how to do their jobs. And um, that, that's the issue with police on campuses at this time. Nobody wants them here. We don't want to have lecture theaters with police and security out there. But if they weren't here, we wouldn't have an academic program. We'd do the entire year. We'd destroy 37,000 lives. So what other options are there? Um, if we don't have the police, we don't have the security. We tried that two weeks ago, and, and lecturers were pulled out of their offices. Students were intimidated. People were kicked out of residences. So uh, with the, without the police here, We've got um, mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the community being intimidated. With the police here, we've yes. got uh, groups who don't want them here. We, we caught between a rock and a hard place. We have to think three things now. Number one, what do the majority of students and staff want? We've done a poll. We understand what that is. Secondly, um, we, wanted, uh, we wanted to find out um, what's, what's in the best interest of students and staff now. There's 37,000 students. What do they want? Um, what's in the best interest of staff. Um, should we just leave it? Should we shut it down, close it, and then it affects um, everybody, including next year's applicants, so nobody can come in? Does it mean that everybody loses their financial aid, their scholarships, and their, their bursaries for this year? Does yes. it mean that 37,000 families um, who sacrificed the whole year up until now lose all that investment in their students? We don't right. think that's fair. Um, so sure not- up, what are the options? It's shut down or you, you open with police, and, and that's the only choices we have. Uh, Sharona, quickly now, two questions. Um, how long is the curfew going to last in the residences? And another question, will you keep the classes um, open despite the uh, small interruptions today? Yes, yeah, so classes, uh, today we had, despite, uh, despite those two classes, we had 95% of all classes in the academic program running today. In fact, it's been like that for the past seven or eight days. Um, today was the first day that we've had disruptions in a long time. Secondly, on the uh, the uh, residences, it's, it's a temporary arrangement. We are currently in talks. In fact, the Dean of Students is in talks right now with the student leaders, and basically we're telling them if they can guarantee that the resident students will not be involved in violent acts at night, we're happy to lift any restrictions. That's a conversation that's happening as we speak. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sharona Patel is the spokesperson of the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Here's Usain Matabula with your economic news.
Good evening, thanks as Pumelele. Shares in MTN Group have slid more than 2% in mid-morning trade on Thursday after Bloomberg reported that Africa's biggest mobile phone operator might have illegally moved more than 14 billion US dollars out of Nigeria. Bloomberg cited a Nigerian senator, Dino Melaye, who referred to early findings of an investigation into their allegation that MTN illegally moved the cash out of the oil-producing country. MTN has denied their accusations. And Zambia spent more than 200 million US dollars on fuel subsidies between January and September this year. The retail price of petrol in Zambia increased nearly 39% last week, while the price of diesel went up 33% after subsidies were removed. The International Monetary Fund wants uh, the country to reduce subsidies as part of an aid package currently being negotiated. Meanwhile, Zambia's economy should grow 3% this year, little changed from 2015, while the fiscal deficit will widen after Africa's second-largest copper producer was hit by depressed metal prices. Zambia's fiscal deficit will top 10% of the gross domestic product this year, which is up from 8.1% in 2015 after state spending rose due to infrastructure projects, emergency power imports and subsidies. The Southern African country began talks with the IMF in March about a potential aid package. After agreeing, the budget deficit was not sustainable. South African Reserve Bank Governor Leseja Khanyako says the cycle of rate hikes could end if the inflation outlook remains constant. The bank forecasts inflation to average 6.4% for the year and not go higher. The consumer price inflation for the month of September was just above 6%. Addressing the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Khanyaho has warned that it will take a while before the bank can actually start to cut rates. The moderating inflation trajectory reflects recent policy tightening by the bank and expected deceleration in food price growth and an improvement in the exchange rate outlook relative to previous forecasts. The MPC is of the view that should the forecast materialize, the hiking cycle may be nearing its end. However, this does not mean the interest rate reductions are imminent. The South African Competition Commission says it has uh, taken a decision not to prosecute a taxi company, Uber, for allegedly contravening the Competition Act. This after the metered taxi industry lodged several complaints against Uber, amongst others that its prices are too low. Tsepo Pahan reports. Some of the complaints against Uber by the metered taxi industry is that Uber operates unfairly in that it secures partnerships with multinational companies and this gives it unparalleled access to the market. And that Uber floods the market with vehicles because it does not have to comply with licensing and other public transport regulations. And it charges prices that are below cost. The commission says it conducted an investigation into these allegations and has found that the alleged conduct does not contravene the Competition Act. And Uganda Central Bank has taken management control of a mid-tier crane bank because it did not have sufficient capital and posed a systematic risk to the financial system. Bank of Uganda Governor Emmanuel Dumusime Mutebile also told a news conference that the lender will remain open and operate normally. Uganda Central Bank says it will protect the depositors' money. 
Now for your look at your financial indicators uh, this hour, the dollar trading at 13.87 to the South African Rand at 10.53 Botswana Pula 9.88 Zambian Kwacha. It is weaker against European currencies at 0.81 to the British pound and 0.91 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,272 platinum $945 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil remains static at $52.58 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Musibudi Makura has your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. Mark Tovey says doctors attending to his brother, Neil Tovey, who is the technical director at the South African Football Association, are impressed by the progress being made by the former Bafana Bafana captain. Neil Tovey suffered a heart attack last week Sunday while training outdoors and was rushed to hospital where he was placed in intensive care unit. Mark Tovey does admit, though, that there's a lot of rehabilitation to be done before Neil gets back on his feet but has shown good signs of recovery. African football analyst Kujo Amangwa has tipped Group B that features Algeria, Tunisia, Senegal as well as Zimbabwe to be the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations Group of Death. This after Wednesday night's draw in the Gabonese capital Libreville, the annual tournament takes place in Gabon next year and Amangwa says the continent's most prestigious spectacle will once again produce unforgettable unforgettable, forgettable um, forgettable memories. For me, that is a group of death. Uh, Algeria have won the African Cup of Nations. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Desert Foxes in 1990. Tunisia won it in 2004. Senegal has been in finals. They've not won it, and Zimbabwe have not won it. But based on current form, that for me is a group of death. Given what the Senegalese players are doing in top leagues around the world, in still the money. Currently, Africa's most expensive player. South Africa's Bafana Bafana have made no progress in the latest FIFA rankings released on Thursday. Sheikh Mashaba's team remain in 62nd position after moving up from 64th position last month. Bafana Bafana played back-to-back draws against Burkina Faso, which ended in a one-all draw in a 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier and came away with the same scoreline in an international friendly match against Ghana's Black Stars earlier this month. At the same time, Bafana Bafana remained 16th um, in the in rather in 16th position on the continent, while Cote d'Ivoire occupy first position. Globally, though, Brazil as well as Germany are closing in on Argentina, who remain in first position, while Belgium have dropped to fourth position in the world. And still on football news, South African champions Mamelodi Sundowns touched down in Alexandria, Egypt this morning ahead of arguably the longest 90 minutes when they take on Zamalek in the CAF Champions League second leg final on Sunday night. Before leaving for Egypt last night, Sundowns head coach Pito Mosimane said his boys who are leading 3-0 from the first leg at home need to stay disciplined and focused as they aim to make history this coming Sunday off tomorrow because of the traveling uh, and then we'll have one on one session there on 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 
on Friday uh, just to try and uh, sharpen the saw, uh, make sure that uh, all the points that we have worked for, the video analysis has been done uh, uh, yesterday of what we expect, what we plan, and we've packaged all Zamalek uh, home games to Widat, to us, we, and, uh, and Yimba, we've packaged them to see the mentality and the characteristics of and the behavior of her, of their play at home. And uh, we also check the referees if are they so much under pressure, influenced, I'm not talking about cheating, mm-hmm. the pressure. If they, 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 they we, we realize that yeah, yeah, some of the fouls, the referees uh, in, in, in Cairo, you must understand, it's, it's not easy there. It's not Lucas Moripe that the coach of uh, Zamalek was saying, it was too noisy, he couldn't give... Uh, 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 instructions to his players. And finally, in te- um, cricket news, rather, South Africa's national men's cricket side, the Proteas, begin their pink ball test series preparation with a two-day tour match against a Cricket Australia 11 side at the Adelaide Oval this coming Saturday. The day-night tour match will be followed by another two-day match with the pink ball as preparations step up a gear ahead of the opening test against Australia starting at the Wacker Ground in Perth on the 3rd of November. Proteas opening batsman Dean Alga, who is one of a few squad members to have played with the pink ball during South Africa A tour to Australia, Back in August, is confident the squad will manage with the challenges and adjusting to the uncharted territory of day-night test cricket. The Zaya Sports News at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-seven Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. Botswana's President Festus Mukhaye has decried renewed fighting that is currently raging in various places in South Sudan. Former University of Edwardeshwan SRC leader Shaira Kalla is reportedly being treated at a hospital after she was shot by police. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Lebo Munamaholu, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thanks for listening. Send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. You can tweet us on Channel Africa 1 or SMS us on plus 27 